The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Romans chapter 9, uh, we will read verses 1 through 16. This is the Word of God. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, but my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah has conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Let's pray. Lord, Romans chapter 9 is a hard chapter. Not in that it's hard to understand what it's saying. It's fairly straightforward. But it's hard to swallow the great truths that are communicated here. And so God, pray for our hearts that you would soften our hearts, humble our hearts to submit to your word. A word that challenges our self-sovereignty. A word that challenges our human efforts. A word that even challenges our very will. And so God, pray that we would see this passage, take it to heart, and understand how it is good news for us and for our salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was growing up, my dad was a computer programmer for a company called Syncom. And evidently, he was pretty good at what he did because he would travel all the time. He was gone probably three out of the four weeks of the month, sometimes more, sometimes less. But he traveled not only around the United States, but all over the world. And I remember when my dad was coming home, how excited I would be. Me and my mom, we would drive up to the airport, 
and we would walk up to the gate because in those days you could, and we would sit at the gate and we would watch planes come by on the, on the, on the, on the tarmac and we would wait and see which one is my dad's, which one is my dad's, and he always flew TWA. Do you remember that airline that used to exist? He flew TWA because it was based out of St. Louis, and so we'd sit and we'd wait, and finally his plane would pull up uh, to, what's that thing called, the tunnel, what's it called? The jetway, is that what it's called? What, the tarmac? That's the tarmac? All right, I don't feel so bad about knowing, not knowing what it means now. They pull up to that stretchy out thing, that walkway, okay? Let's call it a walkway, all right? So maybe it is a tarmac. Anyways, so, that, so they pull up to the walkway, and I'd be so excited. They would open the door, and people would start filing out. And I remember I would stand at the end of that walkway, and I would look down the tunnel, and I would see my dad come around the corner. I'd be so excited. start jumping up and down, and then my dad would finally come off the walkway, and we would see each other, and I'd run out to him, and he'd pick me up, and I would give him a big hug. And it, it just seemed like everything in the world was right again. And it was so good to have my dad home. I loved, I loved it when he came home. And he always... He always was so thoughtful. He'd always bring me a little gift, nothing expensive, but just to let me know that he loved me and cared for me, and uh, it was wonderful to have my dad home. Well, I remember when I was a kid, I I think probably around seven or eight years of age, uh, my birthday was coming up, and he asked me, what do you want for your birthday? And I said, I want you to be home for my birthday. That's what I want. I want you to be home for my birthday. And he said, okay. Um, And somehow in the process, I said, do you promise you'll be home for my birthday? Do you promise you'll be home for my birthday? And finally, he said, yep, I promise I'll be home for your birthday. Well, as it approached, as it got closer, my dad sat me down and he told me that he wasn't going to be able to be there for my birthday. That business was calling him. He had to go overseas to Africa and that he wasn't going to be home for my birthday. And I was so sad and disappointed by that. And yet I was still under the hope that maybe this was all a trick. Like, you know, maybe my dad was just saying that, but then he would surprise me on my birthday. And so my birthday came, and I woke up in the morning, and, and my dad wasn't there, and that was okay. Went off to school, but then after school, I raced home, and I burst through the door. Is my dad home? Nope, he's not home, okay? Went out to eat. Maybe he'll meet us at the restaurant. Dad's not there. Come home? No dad. Go to bed? Dad's not here for my birthday. And I remember how heartbroken I was because he had promised at one time to be there and I wanted him to be there so bad. Now, I don't say this to throw my dad under the bus. My dad was a great dad who loved me and cared for me. He was at so many of my sporting events and other events. He threw the football with me probably a billion times. He, he loved me very well. And my dad also knew that part of his responsibility was to care for his family and to provide for his family. And sometimes providing for your family means you have to go overseas on your son's birthday. That's just the way the world works. And so I'm not throwing my dad under the bus because I know there are times where I have probably broken promises to my children as well. But I think all of us can relate to the fact that people who love us, that care for us, break their promises to us. And it breaks our heart. At the end of Romans chapter 8, Paul makes an amazing proclamation, which we're going to get to in a second. But if you remember two weeks ago, in Romans 8.15, we were told that we are God's adopted children, that we can cry out to him, Abba, Father. And then at the Second half of Romans chapter 8, our Abba Father, our God, through the Apostle Paul, makes us some amazing promises. He promises that he will work all things together for good. 
He promises to conform us into the image of Jesus. He promises to carry us into glory. And because of all of these promises, because he promises never to condemn us, Paul ends Romans 8 with this great crescendo, this great and glorious victory declaration. You can read it with me. Verse 38 in Romans 8, Paul says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Children of God, this is really the greatest promise that we have. That we will never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now, as comforting as this declaration must have been to that original audience, to the church in Rome, that nothing will be able to separate them from the love of God in Christ, as much as they must have rejoiced in this, it would have also created an immediate question. And this is really important for us to understand Romans chapter 9. The immediate question that would have been asked when Paul says, listen, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. The immediate question that would have come from the Jewish Christians in Rome would have been, what about Israel? What about the Jewish nation? What about the children of Abraham, the the chosen people, the promised people of God? What about them? God made similar promises to them in the Old Testament that there's many of them who have rejected Christ, who do not know the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so how can you say nothing shall separate from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord when there are many of our Israelites, many Jews who do not trust in Christ for their salvation? How can you possibly say that? Does this mean that God's word has failed, that God's promises have failed? Now many of you may have had a similar reaction to the promises of Romans chapter 8, you probably did not say, what about Israel? Because, not because you don't care about Israel, but because it's not that close to home. Instead, maybe you said, what about my friend? What about my friend who seemed so in love with Jesus and yet now wants nothing to do with him? Or maybe you said, what about that minister who led me to faith in Jesus Christ and now is indifferent towards the good news of the gospel. Or maybe you say, what about my son or daughter or even father or mother who at one time seemed so in love with Christ but now is completely apathetic towards the faith? I think we can relate all too well to the question that these Jews are asking in Rome. How can we say nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord when it seems like there are those who were faithful to God who no longer experience the love of God in Christ Jesus? Well, friends, today we are going to start a journey with Paul. And I'll be honest, it is not an easy journey. It is a difficult journey, but it is an authentic journey and a journey where we discover hard truths, but glorious truths that should lead us to praise God all the more. And so first we start with Paul's anguishing over God's chosen people. Verse 1 is very interesting because it's kind of redundant. Uh, Paul is saying, this is really, really true. I really, really mean this. He says in verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. Christ is my witness. I am not lying. I am being honest. 
right? My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies to the sincerity of what I'm about to say. Okay, Paul, what is it? That I have great sorrow and unceasing, unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? For I could wish I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Last week, if you remember, we talked about how you can know how much someone is for you by what they are willing to sacrifice for you. And so if I'm willing to buy you a meal, I'm for you. But if I'm going to buy you a house, I'm really, really, really for you, right? Because the degree to which I'm going to sacrifice for you shows the degree to which I am for you. And so how much is Paul for the Israelites? Well, we see here that Paul anguishes over them. He, he grieves over them. Paul testifies under this triple pinky square swear of verse 1 that he would sacrifice his own position in Christ if he could give it to his kinsmen, to Israel. Paul is so for Israel that he would willingly take on the accursedness from God so that they could receive the blessing of God. Paul would take on the cut-offness from God so they could experience the joy of being united to God through Christ Jesus. Paul, in essence, is saying that he would exchange his salvation for their damnation if he could, but that is not how God works. One sinner cannot trade his salvation to another sinner sinner for their damnation, but this is Paul testifying how much he grieves and longs for them to be saved. Paul continues in verse 4 to list out the benefits or privileges of Israel as the chosen people of God and why it is so inconceivable and heartbreaking that they did not identify and trust in Jesus as the promised Messiah. Verse 4, he says this, and I'm going to kind of go slow through this. He says, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption. In the Old Testament, Israel was called the children of God and God says, I will be a father to you. To them belong the glory. They saw the glory of God in many magnificent ways. Whether it be the plagues in Egypt, parting the Red Sea, the pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud, whatever it might be, they saw the glory of God throughout their story. To them belong the covenants. That is, not just the covenant of, uh, with Adam and with Noah, which was made with all of creation, but the covenants that were made with Abraham and with Moses, and with David, covenants in which God obligated himself to them, promised to be their God, and to bless them. To them, Israel belongs the giving of the law. Now, contrary to our common misunderstanding, the law is not, is not a curse, but it is a blessing. God had set his people free from Egypt, and now he was teaching them how to live free in their new freedom. And that's what the law was. And it showed them the holiness of God, the greatness of God, and their need for a Savior. Paul continues, to, long, to them belong the worship. The temple was in Jerusalem where they gathered to worship the Lord. To them belong the promises. God made many promises in the Old Testament, but the three major promises God makes, he makes to Abraham. He promises his presence, again, to be their God and for them to be his people. He promises them a property, that they will have the promised land of Israel, which we now know looks forward to heaven. And he promises them that they will be a people, a great nation, which he does in Egypt when they are under bondage, but now through the global church. 
Paul continues in verse 5 with even more privileges of Israel. Verse 5, he says, To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of the faith who testified to God's goodness. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the long-awaited one who was born a Jew and ministered among Israel. He continues and says, who is, not who was, but who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. Can you see why Paul is in such anguish over his people? It's because he loves Christ and he loves his people. But more than that, because they have all the benefits of knowing who Christ is, and yet they have rejected him. And this is absolutely heartbreaking to Paul, so much so that he can say he is unceasingly in anguish at all times over this. Let me give you a superficial example, just to lighten the mood a little bit. Let's say one of my kids, one of these two right here, grows up and becomes a Bears fan, all right? No offense to Bears fan, it's just an illustration, okay? In my head, I would say, how could this be, right? You're raised in a community with the benefits of being a Packers fan. I mean, we would watch Packers games on TV. We celebrated as the Packers won the Super Bowl. We would go to Packers games. We would wear Packers clothing. You know, we would, we would be in the backyard playing and we'd be Packers players. We would meet Packers players. We'd go to Packers training camp. We would go to special events at Lambeau Field. We would hang out in the Titletown District. You had all these benefits and blessings of, of being a Packers fan. How could you go and be a Bears fan? Just an illustration, all right? Paul was in deep anguish for his fellow Jews, not only because they did not know Christ, but because they grew up with all the privileges and blessings that pointed to Christ and yet rejected them when they rejected Christ. Pastor John Piper makes a really interesting observation about this passage here in Romans 9. He points out that here in verse 2, Paul says, He has unceasing anguish in his heart, and yet Paul in other places, both in Romans but in Philippians, talks about always rejoicing. Philippians 4.4, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And you wonder, how can both these things be true? How can you be constantly in anguish and constantly rejoicing? And as I thought and meditated on this, what I realized is that you really cannot have one without the other. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that he is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You see, friends, our sorrow is a backdoor to understanding what we rejoice in. These two things, sorrowing and rejoicing, are inseparably linked for the Christian. In fact, I would propose to the degree that we are in anguish over something and sorrow over something shows the degree that we rejoice in what it is contrasting. The degree to which we are in anguish and sorrow over those who are cut off from Christ is the degree to which we truly rejoice in Christ. Because the more that we rejoice in our salvation, the more we rejoice in God, the more we rejoice in our Savior, the more we will be in sorrow and anguish over those who do not know him. Christian, let me ask, does your heart anguish over the community God has put you in, over those who do not know Christ? over those whose spiritual state is one that is bleak? Or is your neighbor simply the guy with a dog who barks too loud? 
and your coworker, the guy who talks too much. Friends, we are called to sorrow over our friends, over our coworkers, over our neighbors, because they are under the curse of God and cut off from Christ. I have to confess that for me, this is a double whammy of conviction. Because when I anguish, I don't anguish over the right things, and it reveals that my joy is often misplaced. I mean, think about what do you anguish over? Do you anguish over your retirement? Do you anguish over putting braces on your kids or or your kids' college tuition? If you anguish over those things, what you're revealing is that what you rejoice in is financial security. Or, Or what about traffic? Do you anguish over traffic? When you're in traffic, are you so upset, so angry because things are going slow for whatever reason? If you anguish over traffic, what you are showing that what you rejoice in is speed, is efficiency, right? Friends, if we do not anguish, over those who do not know Christ, it shows us that we are not rejoicing in Christ. The more that we rejoice in Christ as our Savior, as our God, as our deliverer, as the lover of our souls, the more we rejoice in Christ, the more we will be in anguish over those who do not know Christ. And so Romans 9 starts with Paul's anguish with the Jewish Christians in Rome over the rejection of Christ by God's chosen people. But the question still remains. If God has made these promises to Israel, his chosen people, and not all these chosen people are trusting Christ for their salvation, then did God's word fail? Did his promises fail? If they are cut off from God and under the curse of God, does this mean that God is a liar? And so Paul continues by redefining God's chosen people. And just to be clear, God is not redefining the Old Testament view of God's chosen people with a New Testament view as if he's correcting the Old Testament. In fact, what Paul's going to do is Paul's going to take the Old Testament scriptures to redefine the Jewish misunderstanding of who are the people of God, okay? And so we look here in verse 6, and as we read verse 6 through 9, pay attention to the word not, okay? Let that be bolded in your mind. Verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why not, Paul? For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He says it another way. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Now Paul illustrates this. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So let me give you a little bit of a backstory, Just to remind you of the Old Testament passage or if you're new to the Bible to, to share a little bit with you. Abraham is considered as the father of our faith in many ways. See, Abraham was an idolatrous, pagan, childless man. When God came to him and rescued him and made him tremendous promises, the promises to to be with him, his presence, the promise of of the land of Israel, the promise that that, that from him will come a great nation. God makes these promises to Abraham, but not only to Abraham, but also to his offspring. And it's very clear in Scripture And now here is what Paul is proving from this passage, that not all the children of Abraham are children of Abraham. 
Now all the children of Abraham are going to receive the promises of God promised to the children of Abraham. Because not even were both of Abraham's biological sons children of this promise from God. If you have fast fingers or are familiar with the Bible, you want to turn to Genesis 17 really quick. Genesis 17, 15. I'm going to read a few verses there to help us understand this. But what we see is that after God promises Abraham that he will give a son to Abraham and to Sarah, that they grow impatient with God's provision of it. And so they take matters into their own hands and Sarah gives Abraham his maidservant Hagar and through sinful means they produce a child and they name him Ishmael, okay? And that's the context that we're reading this. Genesis 17, 15 through 19 says, And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah, she shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. I love that picture. <laughs> fell on his face before God and laughed. And said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael, his oldest biological son, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And so here you have Ishmael and Isaac, both biological sons of Abraham, both of them circumcised, receiving the covenant sign of God. And yet God makes it crystal clear that Ishmael is not a part of God's covenant people, but Isaac will receive the promises made to Abraham. See, what Romans 9 is challenging here is this commonly held definition of God's chosen people by Jews, that all who are physical, natural descendants of Abraham are true Jews, are God's chosen people. And here Paul uses the illustration of Abraham's first children, Isaac and Ishmael, to say, listen, not all who are born of Abraham, not all who are physical descendants of Abraham are the people of God. Verse 7 says it this way, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. In verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh like Ishmael, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise like Isaac are counted as offspring. And so what we're reminded of here is that true Israel, the true children of Abraham, the children are not of natural descent, but supernatural descent. In John chapter 1, we read that Jesus came to his own, that is to the Jews, to Israel, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so in summary, Paul is saying, listen, not all the physical descendants of Abraham are children of God. Not all of them are the chosen people of God because it is not those of natural birth that are children of God, but supernatural birth. I have a diagram that I've shown to you many times before, but I think is very helpful in thinking through things like this. 
In Scripture, we have the visible people of God. In the Old Testament, they're called Israel. And they're identified with the visible people of God through circumcision. Okay? That's how they're identified with the visible people of God. But then there is the true people of God, the invisible people of God, the people of God that only God really knows about. And they're called true Israel, and they have a circumcision of the heart. Romans 2, 28 through 29 says this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so what we see is that there is an internal circumcision of the heart that is needed to become part of the invisible people of God, the true people of God, the chosen people of God. In the same way, there is the church in the New Testament. And they are identified with the church through baptism, through water baptism. But there is a need to be baptized by the Holy Spirit to become part of God's true people, God's authentic people. Mark 1.8, John says, I have baptized you with water, but Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, how does this apply to us today? Friends, if you are here and you have grown up in the church, or you have been around the church, maybe you have received the the, the sign of baptism, maybe you've even taken the Lord's Supper, maybe you have experienced all of the blessings of being a part of the people of God both in these sacraments, but also in, in Christian community. You have, you have sat under ministries like Awana and youth group or been a part of community groups. Maybe you have been here and you have been hearing the very word of God preached day in and day out. Maybe you have been here and you have seen the gospel communicated time and time again. If you, like the Israelites in Paul's days, have grown up amongst a community of the people of God, with all of us privileges, praise be to God. This is a great blessing from God. But to be crystal clear, none of these privileges save you. But all of these privileges point to the one who does save you. You see, do you, I don't know if you remember back in verse 3, Paul says that if he could, he wishes he could be accursed and cut off from God for the sake of his people. And while one person cannot do that for another, that's exactly what Christ has done for us. Your parents can't do this for you. Your church can't do this for you. These sacraments can't do it for you. But Christ has done this very thing, that at the cross, Christ was accursed for you. Christ was cut off from his heavenly Father for you. Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus did not only take on your curse. Jesus became a curse for you that you can experience the blessing of God. And so if you are raised in the church or around the church with all the benefits and privileges of being a part of God's community, praise God, that is a wonderful thing. But all of it is to point you to the one who does save you, Jesus Christ. That's what Israel was missing, much of Israel missing. And that's what many in the church miss today as well. And so Paul anguishes over God's chosen people, those who have been identified with the visible people of God and yet have not trusted in Christ to become part of the invisible people of God. And that leads us to Romans 9, 10 through 18. 
And this is one of the hardest part of Romans. Again, it's not hard because it's, it's hard to understand. It's actually fairly straightforward. But it's hard because it's hard to swallow. As we read about God's electing of God's chosen people. Verse 10. It says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah conce- had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Now remember, Isaac was the promised child of Abraham and Sarah, okay? Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, that is picking, choosing, okay? In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so in the first example, a Jew could kind of write that off and say, well, Abraham had, had two women that he was with. One was Sarah, and she was kind of the one who it was promised through. And so the lineage went through Sarah and through Isaac. But Hagar, I mean, that was sinful means. That was the maidservant. And so that's why, that's why the promise didn't go with Ishmael. And so Paul amps it up. He says, okay, well, then let's do this. Let's go, let's go with two boys that came from the same mom and the same dad. As a matter of fact, two boys that shared the same womb. And what Paul says here is that God loves one and hates the other. This is earth-shattering for us. God elects one and not the other. God places his everlasting, saving, covenantal love on one of the boys, but not the other. This is absolutely devastating to our desire for self-sovereignty. This is so shattering because God just claimed to be in sovereign control of all things and that salvation is not the loophole. That God is sovereign over all things and all things include salvation things. Now, our natural response to such a statement is that's not fair. That's not right. That's not just. How could God choose one and not the other? And what Paul reminds us here is that when we cry out for fairness and justice, we really don't want fairness and justice. Because if God was fair and just to all of us, all of us would be cut off and accursed from God. And yet God, by his unmeasurable grace, elected some, chose some to pour out his unimaginable mercy. Verse 14, Paul knows the question is coming, and so preemptively he says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 15, Paul is quoting from Exodus 34. Understanding the context is really helpful to understanding what is being said here. Exodus 34, God had just delivered his people out of bondage and out of slavery in Egypt, sent the plagues, parted the Red Sea, uh, triumphed over armies and, and militaries and led his people into freedom, brought them to the base of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and God gives him the commandments, a gift of his grace. And the people down below grow restless. And so they strong arm Aaron and they say, Aaron, make for us a God, make for us a, a bull. They don't have enough gold, so they make a calf. And they have this calf, and they start to celebrate this calf, and they devote themselves to this calf through, through really devious methods. And they say of this calf, 
These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Talking about thankless children. And so Moses goes down the mountain, and we read that Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain, and he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire. And so Moses goes on, and, and he says to the people, hey, who's still, who's still with God? Who's still for God? And some come. And he says to those who are still with God, who are still for God, go and slaughter the rest. And so they slaughter the rest, and God brings his condemnation on this ungrateful, unthankful people through the sword, through famine. And then we get to Exodus 33. And God says these words that we read in Romans 9. He says to Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy to whom I show mercy. Here's the point. I think when we read that story in Exodus 33, we often identify ourselves with Moses, that we were the faithful one. We were the one that was going to be with God while all those other people rebelled. But what Scripture tells us is that we don't identify with Moses, but we identify with those who chase after other gods, who, who, who sinned greatly against a God who has been so gracious to us. I don't know if you remember, but, but Romans 3 describes you and me like this. It's, it's hard truth, but it's honest truth. Romans 3 says, none is righteous, no, not one. You are not the exception. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Friends, when we hear that God places his electing love on some and not others, we may cry out for justice. But justice is not what we want because justice would be our damnation for all eternity. We do not want justice. We want mercy. And mercy is what God gives. Verse 15 again. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I've shared this story before, but I think it's such a great illustration of mercy. There's a story of a man who comes before Napoleon. And he is guilty of a crime which once committed is, is worthy of death. He's done it twice, and so he's doubly uh, worthy of death. And the man's mom comes to Napoleon, and he cries out, and she cries out to Napoleon for mercy. And Napoleon says, but your son doesn't deserve mercy. And the woman said, that's exactly right. If he deserved mercy, then it wouldn't be mercy. I do not cry out for justice, Napoleon, but I cry out for mercy. To which Napoleon responds, the mercy is what he shall receive. Let me say this very slowly, because I think this encapsulates what's going on in Romans 9. If we rightly understand how holy God is and how sinful we are, our struggle will not be to understand why God has not chosen to show his mercy to some. Our struggle will be to understand why God has chosen to show his mercy to anyone. Let me say that one more time. And I'm reading it because I want to make sure I get it right. 
If we rightly understand how holy and perfect and glorious God is and how sinful and wretched we are, our struggle will not be to understand why God has not chosen to show his mercy to some, but our struggle will be to understand why God has chosen to show his mercy to anyone, especially me and especially you. Friends, when we understand how undeserving we are of God's mercy, it is at that point that the mercy of God becomes majestically beautiful to us. It is at that point that our hearts sing about the mercy of God. Let me end with this. I have, supposed to be out of time, but a few thoughts, okay? I have, I have, trying to figure out how much to cover. I'll cover it. I want to tie some few, few loose ends. So I have, I have three questions in one point. I'll try to be quick. By the way, they, they tell you never end a sermon like this, right? Don't provide any new information uh, at the end of a sermon. You should just recap. And so we're going to defy that, go this direction, and we might find out why they say we should never do it, all right? So, so three questions and, and one, one kind of conclusion. First question is this. Does God's election and choosing make me a robot, right? That's the question that this that this leads to? Does it eliminate all free will? And the answer is not at all. See, we often think that because God is sovereign, that, that if God is sovereign, that we have no free will at all. And so it's an or statement, an either or statement. Either God is sovereign or I have free will. But in scripture, it is never an either or. It is always a both and. It is that both that God is completely sovereign over all things and we are responsible for what decisions we make. This is one of those mysteries of Scripture that is so hard to put together in our small brains. But time and again throughout Scripture, it says God is sovereign over all things, and you are completely responsible for your choices. Take, for example, that popular verse, Proverbs 69. It says, the heart of man plans his way. Who plans his way? The man plans his way. But the Lord establishes his steps. I could list you verse after verse after verse that talks about both God's complete sovereignty and man's responsibility right next to each other. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, if you are thinking of a relationship with God, and if you think of it as a door, and you're coming up to that door, and above the door it says, Matthew 10, 42, whoever will confess me before men, I will confess before my Father. Whoever wills, whoever wills, whoever confesses me, whoever trusts me, whoever believes in me, I will confess him before my Father. But then once you walk through that door, if you accept Christ as your Savior, Immediately you will turn around and above the door you will see John 15, 16. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. John 6, 44. No man can come to me except the Father draws him. Friends, if you are here today and you have not yet trusted in Christ for your salvation, this means it is no accident that you are here today. You are here today because it was a divine plan of God and he is calling you to trust in him for your salvation. And if you trust in him for your salvation, I guarantee you, you will look back and you'll see all the divine appointments that God has made to bring you here today to trust in him as your savior. And so trust in Christ for your salvation. The second question, does God's election eliminate our motivation for evangelism? Again, not at all. Paul, who is the one that speaks of election and predestination more than anybody, is also the the greatest evangelist besides Jesus to the known world. Paul's understanding of election did not make him shrink from evangelism, but made him bolder in evangelism. You may say, well, how does that work? Why would it make someone bolder in evangelism if we believe in election? 
Well, in Acts 10, 13, 48, we read that when the Gentiles heard the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying over the word of the Lord. They did. They rejoiced in it. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who appointed them? God appointed them. And so how does understanding election encourage us to evangelism as it did Paul? Well, simply to put it, we do not know who is elected by God and who is not elected by God. They do not have red stripes on them. There's no way to identify. But we know that inside the hearts of some, they will respond to the gospel message because God has put that inside of them. Think of it as getting a, 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 I don't mean to trivialize this, but a stack of scratcher cards, okay? You're going to scratch every single card because you don't know what's below the surface, In the same way, God calls us to scratch people with the good news of the gospel, to show what's within, if they would trust in Christ for their salvation. Third question, and I'll get quicker here. Why does Paul and God put this in the Bible? Why here in Romans chapter 9? Why not just leave us ignorant of it? It would just make life easier. And the simple reason is because if if Romans 9 is not true, we can have no confidence that the promises of Romans 8 are We can have no confidence that God will will never leave us or forsake us. We can never say with Paul that I am sure, I am sure, I am sure that nothing in all creation will separate me from the love of God in Christ. Because if it is not up to God's sovereignty, then we are in trouble. Final thought. When I do my devotion time, I usually outline a passage because otherwise I get distracted and I'll do a summary and an application. And so I did that with this passage as I was preparing. And the summary and application I came up with was simply this. God is God and I am not. God has shown me mercy and his mercy is the theme of my song. Friends, I think what makes Romans 9 so hard to swallow is the same thing that makes it so extremely glorious. It is hard to swallow because it strips our self-sovereignty but it is glorious because it promotes God's sovereignty. Church, why are we the chosen people of God? Because God is God and we are not. And by his great and glorious grace, while we were rebellious, selfish idolaters, he chose to make us objects of his mercy. Let's pray. Lord, there is a lot to wrestle with in this passage. There's a lot to wrestle with in the, in the passages to come. And yet, God, I pray that you would, by your grace, change our hearts and our minds to understand how good it is that you are sovereign over all things, even over salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.